These cases send a strong signal to corrupt officials who may think themselves are untouchable. It's our responsibility to let them know that they can't abuse the United States financial system with impunity. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Today's guest is Robert Manzanares. He's a former law enforcement official with Homeland Security and now works with Gatekeeper Consulting and Investigation. Robert was the lead investigator in the Obiang case, and most of the conversation today will be about this case. Some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not. In the interview, Matthew gives some background information about the case, but as the interview takes a deep dive into the investigation from the start, I thought it might be easier for you to follow if I outline the main cornerstones of the story. Teodoro Obiang is the vice president of Equatorial Guinea and also the son of the sitting president who has been in office since 1979. With his modest salary of 3,200 euros a month, Obiang spent hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars to purchase luxury yards and other assets all over the world. Robert and his team at Homeland Security were able to seize 70 million dollars in US assets, which included, for example, Michael Jackson's glove. I think that's enough for you to follow the conversation Now over to the person who can tell the story best. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did when I listened to it. Have fun. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Manzanares, who, after a long and distinguished career with the United States government as a law enforcement official with Homeland Security Investigations, now is in private practice with Gatekeeper Consulting and Investigations. Uh, Mr. Manzanares, as we'll hear in just a moment, has worked on a variety of very important domestic and international corruption and asset recovery cases. Uh, he's perhaps best known in the anti-corruption world for his work on the case involving uh, the assets misappropriated by Teodorbin Obiang of Equatorial Guinea. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, uh, Robert, please uh, allow me to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Matthew, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to uh, speak on behalf of myself, my, my past experience, and, uh, and obviously regarding the case which we're going to refer to as uh, Theodore and Obiang, the case that uh, started in our agency back in, uh, in 2006. But uh, I can go and do a little bit of uh, my background as to where my career started within the federal government, if you allow me. That would be great. I think that that's usually how we like to begin these conversations. It would be great if you can share with me and with our audience a bit about your background and in particular how you began working on corruption and corruption-related cases. Well, my first job within the uh, U.S. government, I was uh, back in 1992, 
I was a United States probation officer. I supervised a, uh, a high-risk offender with a professional specialty in white-collar fraud, public corruption, organized crime, a major narcotics uh, traffickers, street gang members, violent uh, offenders, confidential informants, corporations, and actually several of the defendants or people that I supervised back then were former police officers, judges, drug kingpins, politicians, and, uh, and several corporation and one well-known cruise line as well. After that, I was actually recruited by the Department of Transportation Office of Inspector General as a special agent. And um, the type of cases that I did there involved false statement cases, contract grant fraud, uh, theft, money laundering, mail fraud, white collar crimes, uh, extortion and bribery. I was the lead agent on uh, three different cases in one year in an eight-month period, and uh, all which resulted in, uh, in convictions. So in 2007, I was recruited by, at the time, was ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, who subsequently changed their name to uh, Homeland Security Investigations. When I was transferred there, one of the first cases that I was involved in, I, um, I took over an international cigarette smuggling case where I was the lead agent involving a network of cigarette smugglers who conspired with others in Miami as well as other international locations such as Spain, Great Britain, Ireland, Germany, smuggle cigarettes out of the port of Miami to some of these countries. And in this particular case, the defendant in this case ran his operation out of Miami. He smuggled cigarettes from Panama to Miami, and then he arranged for the purchases of cargo such as yarn, uh, wood flooring, building installation material to be used as cover loads to conceal the cigarettes. The customs duty taxes were based only on the falsely declared cargo and thus no duties and taxes were paid on the $5 million in cigarettes. So that was my first initiation into an international case. Um, I was also assigned to Miami International Airport where I was the lead agent in a multi-million dollar laundry and internal conspiracy case involving corrupt airline officials and foreign law, law enforcement officials who acquired property both domestically and internationally despite not having the sufficient cre credit worthiness to make such purchases. As a result of my prior corruption experience, let's just say I was transferred to a kleptocracy group in and around 2008. At that time, ICE was the only international foreign corruption group within all of law enforcement that was investigating these type of kleptocracy cases. So insofar as how I got involved in the Obiang case, it was around 2009 and the New York Times had uh, published an expose regarding ICE's investigation efforts against the Minister of Forestry and Agriculture of Equatorial Guinea. 
the New York Times was able to obtain a PowerPoint presentation and a DOJ's mutual legal assistance treaty between the U.S. and France. The French government had previously opened an investigation relating to Obiang, which was summarily closed. In France, unlike the United States, once the criminal investigation is closed, all the documents become public. So as you can imagine, there was some highly sensitive material that was contained in the PowerPoint presentation that we had provided to the French, which in hindsight probably should have not been included. You know, I recall the firestorm that that article created within the agency, and I kind of chuckled to myself back then. I said, to, I said man, I'm glad I'm not the agent on that case. And um, the, the thing about the OBN case is that it was initiated back in 2006. It had gone through eight different agents before it unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, got to me. So in late 2010, as my memory recalls, I remember my supervisor calling me into his office, and he asked me to shut the door. I knew that wasn't good right then and there. And I said to myself, oh, God, what did I do? And he says, listen. I need you to take over this OBN case because the agent who had it didn't have this sufficient experience to handle this level of case, especially what transpired with the New York Times. So, of course, I said, okay, I'll do it. So I recall walking out of my office and walking back to my cubicle and telling my partner then, I just inherited that ticking time bomb case. We both expressed how I got dealt the cards from the bottom of the deck at that time. We knew that the OBN case had gone through multiple agents and multiple prosecutors. So the thing that I knew about OBN going in, because so many people have talked about it, was the house that he had in Malibu that he acquired for $32 million and a Gulfstream jet that he purchased in the amount for $38 million. So I recall having to read all the reports dating back in 2006. I then began reviewing thousands of documents every day for months. One of the habits I always had that I I undertook for myself was I always liked looking at canceled checks. And there were hundreds of them. I recall, but one of them stood out, and one of the checks was for a Florida auto tag, which is right in my backyard because I worked in Miami. And I looked at who the person was that cashed the check, and I went and interviewed him. He confirmed that the tag was for a boat trailer. He said, but it was for the prince. And I said, the prince? Who's the prince? Yeah, the guy, the prince. So... He says to me that he had purchased a GoFast boat from a manufacturer in Fort Myers, Florida, which is approximately two hours away from Miami. So after serving a subpoena on the boat manufacturer, I learned that there were a total of actually three boats that Obiang had purchased at a cost of $1.5 million per boat. 
The boat had turbine engines, which are similar to helicopter engines, which would allow the vessel to travel up to 200 miles per hour. Not sure why someone needs to travel 200 miles an hour on a boat, but, you know, that was, I guess, the extravagance that uh, Obiang loved to live under. So I remember serving the subpoena, then meeting with them at their company headquarters. And they were obviously very concerned that if they had exposure and I had to reassure them that they didn't. So during the meeting, one of the uh, staff members says to me, you know, he bought the glove. And I didn't understand what she meant. And she said, the glove, the Michael Jackson glove. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? He says, because his personal assistant told us, she boasted about how he purchased the Michael Jackson glove. Needless to say, that was a huge moment for us as investigators. And when I returned home that day, I began scouring the internet for leads. And I located the auction video of the person who purchased the glove. And in fact, it was Obiang's personal assistant. I then called the head of the auction company. And after identifying myself and requesting further details on the Michael Jackson glove purchase, I recalled him asking me if I needed to be concerned or he needed to be concerned uh, with the person who purchased the glove because they were a good paying client. And when he said that to me, I said, hmm, I asked him, I said, well, are you saying that maybe I need to expand the scope of my subpoena to include other memorabilia? And there was a long pause in his response. And I knew then that this was a big moment in the case. I immediately contacted my prosecutor and I asked him, hey, are you sitting down? Let me just tell you what I just learned. So when I got the production and return from the auction company, it wasn't just a $300,000 glove that he purchased. It was $3 million in Michael Jackson memorabilia that he had purchased using a straw person, his personal assistant. This, in my opinion, was a game changer. Now, had we had to go to trial, this would look a lot more sexier in front of a jury. There was also, in the documents, there contained an email from his personal assistant, which said, OBN could not be listed in any of the documents. And let me quote what she said. She said, he needed to remain invisible. So in other words, no one could know that the true beneficial owner of this Michael Jackson memorabilia was Obiang. As I had the case, I remember back in about 2011, a journalist published an article and it was called, How Many Investigators Does It Take to Catch a Kleptocrat? I can recall how angry and embarrassed I was because at the time I was the lead agent. As being the lead agent, there was a paragraph that was in the published piece. And an attorney who I interviewed was quoted as saying, it looks like they just wanted to check off a box showing that they had called me. 
any law firm would fire a first year associate for doing this level of work. When I read that, I was infuriated and it took every professional bone in my body not to call him back. This moment made me put into perspective JFK's famous quote, winning has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. It hit me then that this was a lot bigger than I actually knew because there was so much attention being paid to this OBN case. So we filed our first complaint back in October 25th in 2011. And because we were running up on the statute of limitation, we needed to have it filed. The judge subsequently dismissed the case, but he gave us another bite of the apple to beef up our evidence. One of the areas of the complaint, which we obviously knew and obviously knew that there were weaknesses, was that we did not have a lot of firsthand witnesses. So one of the ways that we tried to overcome this was when we filed our initial complaint, in DOJ's press release, they added an email address and an 800 number so that anyone could send information regarding the case. This resulted in numerous responses and one-on-one interviews that we ended up conducting worldwide. Thereafter, we were able to compile a list of property and assets in four continents during a period of 11 years. So beginning from 2000 to 2011, Opiang spent well over $300 million over this period on a reportedly salary of $100,000 annual. Here's just a few of the assets. A $30 million home in Malibu, a $38 million uh, Gulfstream jet, a $6.5 million Bel Air home in California, a 2011 Ferrari worth about $500,000, an $88 million property in Paris, $8 million property in South Africa, $30 million in art from Sotheby's that he purchased. And he attempted to purchase a $380 million yacht in Germany. So for a complete detailed accounting of all the different assets that we were located, I would refer you back to the second amended complaint, which I executed on June 11th, 2012. Any questions so far? Well, that was, a, that was a, a whole bunch. So if you don't mind, there are a few things I want to ask you about and that I think our listeners will be interested in. So this was a really useful overview of, of the, the process of going after Teodoro Nobiang's assets. I, I worry that we might have gotten a little bit ahead of at least some of our listeners because some people might be very familiar with Obiang and Equatorial Guinea and this case and others a little bit less so. So Teodoro Obiang was the son of Teodoro Obiang, who's the president of Equatorial Guinea, which is a country that has enormous resource wealth, but also an extraordinarily high poverty level. And Teodoro Obiang, despite, as you just said, having a, a relatively 
modest official salary as, as a minister in his father's government had billions of dollars, literally, in assets all over the world and that you and your colleagues helped ultimately seize because uh, these, these assets were very likely the proceeds of, of unlawful conduct. That actually, I think that may be one thing that will be useful to clarify for, again, some of our listeners who will be familiar with this legal area, but others maybe a little bit less so. Your investigation, as I understand it, was not actually a criminal investigation against Obiang himself, but was rather targeted at his assets. It's one of the reasons that the court case, if I remember correctly, has what to non-lawyers or even to some lawyers has a kind of strange or amusing name, something like United States versus one white jeweled glove from the bad tour or something like that. So, well, so can, can you explain a little bit, again, for those of our, because we, we have many people listening to this podcast who might not be as familiar with how uh, this system works. Many of them are not from the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about how it is, what the authority is, what the process is for the United States government to investigate and ultimately, as in this case, to seize assets that are likely the proceeds of unlawful conduct, even unlawful conduct that took place outside of the United States when the United States is not pursuing an active criminal investigation against the, frankly, the criminal who procured those assets in the first place. Well, the, and I was going to follow up with that a little bit later, but this was a bifurcated case. So there was a criminal component and then there was a civil forfeiture component. So it's two different entities that we undertook in this case. So there were individuals that we were targeting criminally, and then there was actually the, the civil forfeiture because of the money laundering and the concealment of money that was brought in from Obiang using enablers to open up bank accounts, open up shell corporations so that he can make certain purchases within the United States. So our nexus was because that money was coming from overseas and into the financial depository of banks within the United States, that was our nexus in pursuing these allegations. Does that help to give you a perspective on that? Very much so. Another aspect of this that I think people will be interested in, in understanding is how the different entities involved in the investigation interacted or worked together. So you were working for Homeland Security Investigations. The Department of Justice, in, particularly, in particular the so-called kleptocracy asset recovery initiative, I gather was involved in this case as well. Although it sounds like the, the investigation predated even the creation of that unit. I would imagine that at some point, the Federal Bureau of Investigations may have been involved in some capacity. And of course, because it's a global investigation, as you just said, Theodore Benobiang had properties. He's from Equatorial Guinea and had assets all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about the different functions of those different entities and was it challenging to coordinate all of these activities? How did that process work? It seems very complicated 
to pursue an investigation like this when there are so many entities necessarily involved? Well, let me just answer your first question as, as it relates to the FBI. No, the FBI was not involved in this case at all. This was all Homeland Security's case. So uh, I, I believe they may have wanted some uh, uh, involvement, but uh, that wasn't the case, uh, especially when I undertook over the case. So um, yes, it, it is extremely challenging to do a case like this, especially because there were many assets that we located overseas and we had to work with our federal law enforcement partners or partners in those particular countries to aid us and give us certain information that was viable for us to move our case forward. So the coordination was extremely complicated and I can tell you the turnaround time was not as quickly, unfortunately, as we would probably would like. But that's why the case took, I mean, several years for it to you know, gather its legs and to move forward to where we got it to was because we had to rely on many of our partners overseas to assist us. So... As I'm sure you know, there's some question, at least in some quarters, about why the United States invests substantial resources in cases like this, which is separate from the legal question whether the United States has jurisdiction. Because, of course, as you well know, the United States government does not choose to investigate every crime that could potentially fall under U.S. jurisdiction. There are choices that are made every day about the level of resources to commit to different cases. And while the view I'm about to express is certainly not my view, I'm sure you're aware that there are people out there who might say, huh, we have this extremely talented law enforcement official who could be going after drug dealers or people engaged in violent crime or smuggling illegal contraband into the United States. Why is it that this person and a bunch of other people with similar qualifications are spending upwards of a decade going after the assets of a guy who may well be a bad guy, but where it might be difficult for you know, the average person to understand exactly what significant U.S. interests are implicated here. Now, I, my guess is that you have some thoughts about this, and I just wanted to invite you to reflect on why or to what extent it's, a, it's an important use of scarce U.S. law enforcement resources, money, talent, et cetera, to go after the assets of foreign kleptocrats in cases like this? Well, the reason why it's important is if you and I are the average person, I need to know that both you and I are playing under the same rules. And if I earn my money legitimately and you steal your money, you just can't use the United States or any other country to launder it. These cases send a strong signal to corrupt officials who may think themselves are untouchable. It's our responsibility to let them know that they can't abuse the United States financial system with impunity. Even if you're the son of the president or a sitting minister in their home country, 
the United States was not going to be a haven for it. And that was the initiative that the former Department of Justice Attorney General formulated when he put together this kleptocracy group, that this was what they were going to target. And I guess I'll get into some of the post-Obiang stuff a little bit later with you, but I can tell you personally that at the time when I was doing the Obiang case, there were probably about a total of six prosecutors that were involved in this particular unit. This unit has grown to over 20 prosecutors now as we speak. So Obiang was the poster child. This was the biggest case in kleptocracy. The initiative was Obiang. The poster child of kleptocracy, there he was, right there standing in front of us. This is why we took that initiative. Do you have a sense, I mean, this isn't something that would be impossible, I think, to, to measure in any rigorous way, but do you have a sense that the Obiang case, which was such a high-profile case, had the kind of effect that you just described? Do you think other people who maybe before that case thought the United States might be a welcome haven for their illicit assets saw that case and went, oh, boy, you know, maybe we should check out Dubai or, or something, but we, we're, our, our assets are not safe. Do you, do you have any, have you seen any evidence, even anecdotal evidence that the, this case being such a high profile case had that kind of impact or is it just too soon to tell? No, let's, let's look at what happened post-Obiang. I was going to save this for a little bit later, but let's take a, let's take a moment to talk about post-Obiang. In 2014, the United States settled with Obiang for over $30 million. In 2016, the Swiss seized $120 million in assets from OBA. In 2017, guess what? France then went after him. The same France who initially dismissed their case, and they took $125 million from assets from him. In 2018, Brazil sees $16.5 million in assets from him. Now, let's, let's talk about maybe some of the other law enforcement partners. 2015, the FBI announces that they're going to establish their own international corruption squad. In 2019, in my backyard, which was in Miami, FBI announces that they've opened up a group strictly to deal with these kleptocracy matters, especially in South America. So without a doubt, Obiang set the tone for a lot more agencies to get on board because the kleptocracy initiative was something that everybody wanted to get involved in. Also, FinCEN is the um, intelligence unit uh, run out of the Department of Treasury. They began a geographic targeting requirement by title companies to collect and report the beneficial ownership information for certain real estate purchases. And what they did, they targeted certain areas, specifically Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Hawaii, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Miami, New York, San Antonio, San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle. So all these now 
states are targeting certain purchases. Any home which was purchased for at least $300,000, which did not involve a bank loan or smaller external financing, the Department of Treasury was requiring those particular entities to report whether or not a purchase was in currency, cash, cashier's checks, certified checks, traveler's checks, personal checks, business checks, money orders, fund transfers from virtual currency. Yes, this was all post OBANG, and this was something that wasn't happening before the OBANG case was settled. I'm glad you brought up that point about the geographic targeting orders and the uh, in that case, it was, it was the title insurance companies in particular that were obligated to verify the beneficial ownership. Correct. Because that ties back to something that you said earlier that I also wanted to pick up on, and that has to do with the so-called enablers. And I think this is of interest because, as I'm sure you know, many anti-corruption civil society organizations, activists, and others have really made this a point of emphasis in the last decade or so because there was this idea sometimes that the corruption takes place in what we sometimes call the global south, developing countries, places like Equatorial Guinea, and that places like the United States and Canada and Western Europe are, for lack of a better term, cleaner countries and societies. But what many people have been increasingly pointing out is that this kleptocracy that we see in the global north is made possible by facilitators in the financial centers and other locations in the so-called global north. And this is uh, real estate agents and banks and consultants and accountants and lawyers, I should hasten to add, um, all play a role as well. I took it from what you said a moment ago when you were giving your very useful comprehensive summary of your investigation to the Obion case that these so-called enablers or facilitators were a big part of the story of that case as well. And I would just invite you to elaborate on maybe a couple of points. One is, what role exactly were these facilitators playing? And second, what kinds of legal action or remedies, if any, are available or were pursued against the entities that were enabling criminal like Teodorovin Obiang to launder his money through the United States and other places? Well, let me just say that one of my greatest disappointments in this case, especially when all my career, I was accustomed to either indicting and arresting people, and I more so played a heavier role in the civil forfeiture side of this. My disappointment was that no one, no one person or no one persons were indicted as they were the enablers opening up shell corporations in the United States, having monies wired under these fraudulent pretenses that the monies was from legitimate resources or sources. And lying about who the true beneficial owner was of those accounts. So to answer your question as to maybe why those people were not targeted, 
I will say this, there's a lot of consideration made on those individuals. And I'm kind of giving you the overview of Obiang and giving you the rated G version of this case and not giving you the rated R version. It's a family podcast. Uh, (laughs) So uh, with that in mind, and considering what I just said, that my greatest disappointment that nobody was indicted in this case, and, and and I'll say this, I'm not pointing any fingers at anyone at DOJ. I have to tell you my working relationship with them over this OBN case was outstanding. And think about it. A lot of people have different views in tackling cases like this. And from a law enforcement perspective, we have a different mindset sometimes than prosecutors do. And there's a tendency to butt heads. But I can tell you that my relationship with my prosecutor was probably the best of any prosecutor that I've ever worked with to consider that I traveled with him overseas to numerous international countries with him more than I've done with my own wife. So you have to get along with one another in order to do so. So I hope I answered, I probably didn't answer the question that you wanted me to answer, but please respect the fact that I want to reserve my comments in in a very pragmatic and diplomatic way. That's entirely uh, understandable and I don't want to I don't want to press you or or try to okay. get you to criticize other people who were involved. Sure. Uh, let me one more aspect of this that I want to touch on though before we move on. And again, you should feel free to demur if, if you prefer. But do you think that in order to better go after or to make it easier to go after the enablers or facilitators there are changes in the law on the books that are necessary, or at least that would be helpful? Or is your sense that there are already portions of the criminal code that cover the behavior in question, and that it's more a matter of the exercise of discretion as to which cases to pursue? This is a long-winded way maybe of saying if you had the ear of the United States Congress or someone in it, are there changes to the law that you think would be important in order to make it easier to go after the enablers? Or do you think that's not really the core issue here? Well, I believe that there's, again, my opinion that there are enough laws to undertake and indict individuals who were involved in this Obiang case. You know, to prove that Obiang obtained money traceable to corruption, we needed to provide evidence that he took steps to conceal the source, the ownership of money he brought in from Equatorial Guinea into the United States. What Teodoran purchased many assets using shell companies, nominees. His lawyers also set up bank accounts for him in names of various shell companies. They laundered the funds through their attorney-client trust fund. They lied on account opening forms in order to prevent the U.S. banks from knowing 
where his money was coming from and who was the beneficial owner was. So on numerous occasions, banks shut down his accounts. They learned the truth, causing him to open up new accounts elsewhere or under a different name. As an example, in attempting to purchase the Gulfstream jet that he purchased here in the United States, Teodorin simply changed the escrow agent rather than comply with the requests for information about the source of his funds being used to purchase the jet. To prove the lack of sufficient legitimate income, we were able to prove that his wealth is inconsistent with a cabinet minister's salary. Listen, the enablers helped him. They received a benefit. Theodorin paid them. Let's be quite frank about what they did. And again, as I mentioned, it probably would have served a more deterrent message that people went to jail. That did not happen. So uh, we're almost out of time. You've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to hold you for too long, but there were just a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about briefly before we close. One of them that very much relates to the, the Obion case specifically, but also relates to a number of these other cases, has to do with what should happen to the assets or the proceeds of the assets after they're seized in a case like this. And I know your job as a law enforcement officer was to do the investigation, to find the evidence, to provide the legal justification for the, the forfeiture and that your office would have been less involved, although I think you were still involved in discussions to some extent with what happens afterwards. But in many of these cases, and the Obion case is, is very clearly an example of this, formally, as a matter of formal law, the legal owner of at least some of these assets may be the government of the country in question, in this case, the government of Equatorial Guinea. But as a practical matter, if you take these millions of dollars of assets that we just seized from Theodore and Obiang and give them to the government of Equatorial Guinea, that's practically like handing them right back to Obiang or to the Obiang family. Because one of the problems in these kleptocracies is there's not a sharp distinction between the government and the ruling family or clique or, or set of entities. So this is a well-known problem. I'm sure you have thought about it because you, know, you were spending years and years of your life to get this money and I'm sure you didn't want to just hand it right back to Theodore and Obiang. But of course, it's very complicated because what right does the United States have to decide whether the lawful owner of property is entitled to have it back, even if you're worried that it might get stolen again? So I would love to hear your thoughts from a perspective of, of a law enforcement officer who's worked so hard in these cases, what you think ought to be done to resolve this conundrum. What do we do with these assets? As a technical legal matter, you might say they belong to country X, in this case, Equatorial Guinea. As a practical matter, you don't want to give the loot back to the people who stole it. So what do you do? So this is how I respond, and uh, it may be the, uh, the weak way out. But in law enforcement, we conduct the investigations to establish either probable cause or in this, in this particular case, it was probable cause, but in, an, in the criminal aspect of it, beyond a reasonable doubt. And once a case goes before a judge, the 
law enforcement personnel, it's not within our purview to determine what the sentencing range should be for that person. That is already established by the courts, Congress, the executive branch. And so we don't have a lot of input in so far as what a particular person should re, uh, receive in terms of a sentence. In this particular case, you bring up a host of areas and points that are right on point. What are we going to do with this money, especially when the monies are still in control and the politicians and families still control, in Obiang's case, involved in the country, who allowed, who closed their, their eyes to allow him to steal the money. So I believe the OBN case, even though it was settled in 2014, it continues to move on forward because that is the quagmire that the government is in. Now, OBN agreed to settle this case with the government. So he, in essence, says, all right, take the money or take the property in this particular case. So now we're in a position to determine, well, how are we going to benefit the citizens of Equatorial Guinea? I have to tell you, it's not an easy decision to undertake. I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to do it. Um, I'm glad that there's a lot of smarter people out there than I am that are uh, going to have to resolve the matter so that in future cases, they're able to establish a certain guideline as to how this is going to work. Maybe it wasn't really thought out clearly initially how it was going to happen and giving back that money or how can we help assist the people that are living in, in poverty, uh, that are dying of malaria, kids who are dying before the age of 10. There, there has to be some way that we can achieve or the government can achieve to give back some of this money to help those people. But I don't know where we are with that. And uh, having been out of the government now for three years, I know that is uh, an issue that they are tackling. But the message had to be sent. I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful that I was uh, part of this team that did this case, and, and by no means, uh, and, and I probably should have said this very early on, I was supported by a bunch of great people who did this case with me. And I owe them a deep, deep gratitude for what we were all able to achieve. Um, we all knew that, again, this was the poster child. We knew that future kleptocracy cases would need this type of input from everybody and having to deal and having to work with our law enforcement partners overseas we knew that this had to work so there was an enormous amount of pressure on this case as i look back at it now when you're in the game you're not thinking of that but now that i've stepped away and I see how many other cases are now coming up like this. You know, I'm proud to have been involved in it. There's still a long way to go as to how to manufacture a system 
to get back that money from a country that one of their politicians stole. But in Obiang's case, it's difficult because most of these cases, you have a new regime that's coming in and they see this misappropriation and then they start asking for help. The old regime now is involved and you're able to target that regime. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case with Obiang because you have Teodoran's father who has been the longest standing dictator in the world. It is without a doubt a, a difficult decision that DOJ is going to have to make. And uh, I'm glad to be left out of that equation. How's that? That's just fine. I want to thank you very much. I could go on for much longer, but unfortunately we're out of time and I should let you go. But uh, I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time and sharing your experiences with me and with our audience. Uh, again, this has been an episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My guest today has been uh, Robert Manzanares. Uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, very, very helpful conversation. Matthew, I look forward to doing any more uh, podcasts with you in the future. Wonderful. Take care. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the Obiang investigation, please check out the show notes. Also, follow the work of the NGO Global Witness, who played a major role in the case. In episode 9 of Kickback, we already talked with Deborah Laprovot about asset recovery in depth, so go back and check that out as well. If you like what we do, please write us a review or become a Patreon. Every cent goes directly back into the podcast. If you want to get updates about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. As always, a big shout out to all of our loyal Patreons. We really appreciate the support. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kubis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time and stay safe.